Hi, this is Bethany Wilkinson. Welcome to the Diversity Gap Podcast, the home of race-conscious leadership. Hey there, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Diversity Gap Podcast. I am so excited to share today's conversation with you. It's actually one that I recorded in, I think, like fall, maybe summer 2019. So gosh, it was a long time ago now, or it feels like it was a completely different universe, but it's such a rich conversation. I will be introducing that here in a moment. But before we get to the conversation, I want to extend an invitation to all of the DEI practitioners, VPs of diversity and inclusion, those of you who are leading your ERGs, you're leading your diversity task forces, you care about this work, Whether diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, whether those words are in your title or not, I want to extend an invitation to you to consider applying for the Growth Collective. The Growth Collective is a four-month mastermind for DEI practitioners, those who have DEI in their titles, those who do not, who are looking for community, connection, support, um, challenge, growth, a place to practice your skills, to workshop your frameworks, to learn from other practitioners from across the country, if not across the world. And so if you are a DEI practitioner struggling with feeling isolated, struggling with feeling like there's not really a space for you to again, workshop your ideas or to learn new frameworks or to get feedback on some of the really challenging power and social and emotional dynamics you're navigating in your role, then the Growth Collective is for you. I have been the primary or the um, the lone aspiring change agent in the organizational context. And it comes with some really unique challenges. And I believe that there aren't enough spaces for DEI practitioners and professionals to get in a room and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's the support that I need. One of my favorite parts of this growth collective is that each session that we have, there will be a hot seat where one person will give a presentation on all of the different aspects of the DEI program they're leading. And the group will give live, active, supportive feedback to you to help you refine the good work that you're doing in your organizational context. Here at the Diversity Gap, we are all about developing effective, authentic, soul-guided, just really well-nourished and well-supported race-conscious leaders. And so if you are looking for that kind of support, visit www.thediversitygap.com slash growth collective. There's a link to learn more in the show notes here and you can apply and we'll start the conversation to see what kind of support you need and to see how the Diversity Gap and the Growth Collective might be able to join you on your leadership journey. I hope you'll check it out and I can't wait to see your application come through our pipeline. Okay, so for today's conversation, like I mentioned earlier, this is a conversation that I recorded back sometime in 2019, and I don't know what happened. Somehow I lost the audio, and this episode never got edited or shared with the world, and so I found it. I remembered that I had this conversation with David Bailey, the founder and CEO of Airbon, and I was like, oh my goodness, that conversation was amazing. Did I ever share that conversation? I don't think I did, and so I got lost in my Google Drive looking for it because here's the thing. Learning from David Bailey is like... Oh, golly, it is 
being watered from the deepest well. He is just a well of knowledge, of wisdom, and those two things are not always the same. He doesn't only know a lot of information, but he applies them with such wisdom. He, I mentioned this in the conversation, he shares so many incredible metaphors helping to not only simplify complex realities, but to help us all as individuals and as organizations take those lessons and move towards greater action, greater empathy, greater equity even. And so I really am thrilled to share this conversation with you. I first connected with David many years ago. I was in the process of discerning whether or not to take a new job while also trying to decide what role I wanted to play in my church's racial reconciliation work. Now, I know some of you might not know this about me, depending on when you started listening to this podcast, but I got my start in this racial justice space through my faith community. And so I learned a lot about racial justice, about racial history through the lens of my faith, through the lens of the action or inaction of church communities. And And yeah, I don't remember all of the details, but I had a good friend who connected me to David and said, hey, David's super wise. He might be able to help you sort this out. And so in that moment, I was super thrilled to learn from him personally. Just he asked really great questions. And then in this podcast conversation, he shares incredible insights, again, incredible metaphors, stories to help us live our value for racial justice and racial healing and racial reconciliation from a place of compassion, a place of real understanding, and from a place of authenticity. Um, you can learn more about Erebon, the um training coaching practice that he leads at www.arabon.com. It's going to be linked in the show notes, but until then, I hope you enjoy this incredible conversation with thought leader, artist, public theologian, just brilliant person, um, David Bailey. Oh, real quick, one more thing. The audio on this podcast is not my best work. This was back in the day before I had a really good mic, and I think I was in a pretty spacious room because the sound is just not awesome. (laughs) And then I think on David's mic, there may have been like a little, I don't know, like a, a piece of fuzz. I have no idea. Ultimately, I listened through the whole thing, and I was able to really track with the conversation, Um, but I'm giving you this heads up just in case the audio provides a challenge for you. Um, If you need it, there is a transcript also linked in the show notes. And so if you want to just bypass the listening part and just read the conversation, or if you want to do both together, that's available to you at the link in the show notes, along with all of the other transcripts for all the other episodes, should you need those. Okay, I'm done now. Enjoy this conversation between me and David Bailey. question, and this is where I start with everyone that I interview, is um, when did you first know that you have a race or ethnic identity? That's a really good question. I mean, so I grew up in a context where I lived in um, a part of the suburbs where Black people and minorities would uh, move to when they leave the city. And so I grew up in a, a diverse context and I mean, it wasn't like a thing. Like I, I think looking back, like one of my first childhood childhood playmate friends was a um, a Mexican girl, um, and so so I think when I went to a black church, um, and I you know I think I think it was this guy brother Mike who was like the only white dude that went to church with us, and he was a guy that struggled with with, um, 
mental health, like schizophrenia. Um, and I think the black church was like the only church that would really like kind of take him in and kind of work with this brother. Um, he was very brilliant, but then when he would get off his medications, he would, um, he would really uh, kind of go on the deep end a little bit. And uh, it was a church that um, dealt with people that had various types of either addictions or just challenges. Um, so they were just like used to kind of getting down in the gutter with people and learning how to like love, love on folks. And so I think in that context with this being a white dude, I think it was a, a white guy in a black space. I think that might've been one of the first times that I was conscious of race. Um, yeah. Cause he was just like a white dude in a black space. So, but I think every other, other kind of place, I mean, I was just, I mean, I don't, I don't recall it being a thing. Um, it was just, yeah. So, I th yeah, but I think that's where I got probably got conscious of it. Yeah, and so I know in a second I'm going to ask you more about like your work and Arabon and what you do to support other communities who are pursuing racial justice or equity in a variety of ways. But when did you first decide that pursuing racial equity and um, like in a professional sense was what you wanted to do with your life and with your work. Um, because I find that for a lot of um, people of color or leaders of color within organizations, it's like there's, of course, there's like your racial awareness, but then opting in to participate in like pursuing justice is kind of its own decision. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that journey was like? I mean, if I think about it, I mean, it really, I didn't really choose it. It kind of chose me. I mean, um, my parents were really involved in uh, ministry and they did, we were going to church in urban inner city context. My, my dad particularly uh, focused on doing a lot of urban suburban partnerships. So um, I was just going wherever they went and doing whatever they did, you know, as a kid. And, and that's kind of part of a lot of the work that they did. Um, then I worked professionally as a musician. Um, and so from about 14, uh, on all the way um, to much of my professional life, I worked as a professional musician. And so, you know, I would play in all the different type of racial, ethnically and economically diverse contexts and from country clubs to jazz clubs to white churches to black churches and, and even international churches. And so, um, so that kind of had me professionally going out of different kind of cultures and and one of the things I have to kind of say is that when you're a music producer or a music director, you're a cultural anthropologist. I mean, if you're a good one, because you 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 get a chance to understand these different cultures and how do you make a, a meaningful connection with folks. And so um, I brought that into my ministry work. And I realized when I'm sitting around meetings with pastors or ministry leaders, um, you know, they they don't uh, think about things anthropologically. They say, hey, we're just going to fulfill our mission. And, and not really realize, I'm going to just preach the word, and, and they don't really realize that they're coming from a cultural perspective, and their audience might not have the same cultural perspective. And so, um, yeah, so they, they just kind of might miss each other, miss, miss their audience, or, or, or not really fulfill the mission as great as it could be because because they're not aware of their own cultural biases or the cultural biases of their audience. And so, you know, really it was my wife that kind of said, like, hey, David, um, I realize people keep on asking and picking your brain about how do you do this? Maybe you should write it down. So I just, you know, I 
I was like, hmm, I never thought about that. And I realized she was on to something. And uh, that's that started Airbond in 2008. And, and that was since then I've been going. So it wasn't, I mean, it really wasn't like a conscious choice. And I think where I was in 2008 and how I was trying to make sense of things, like uh, I really evolved and matured over the last, you know, over a decade now. So that's kind of how I kind of got into it. Gosh, I have a, I love that point that you made about the importance of being like a cultural anthropologist, because I think for a lot of people, even when um, they start their own companies or their businesses, especially if they're coming from a majority culture perspective, there is this um, often unspoken assumption that what they're working on is universal um, as opposed to cultural. And so um, can you speak to that a little bit, like for leaders who are listening and they think like, oh, I'm doing this thing, it's a universal problem or I, I don't know, but in reality, they have a cultural perspective. Like, what what are some other other thoughts you have around that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, in the advertising age, uh, industry, they understand like and um, the importance of cultural anthropology. You know, um, if, if if you have a degree in, in cultural anthropology, you can get um, um, a job and doing advertising, maybe some marketing. Uh, because they just know how human behavior works and, and, and paying attention to that is really, really important and understanding like what is what is society, what are the people, uh, what is humanity saying is really, really key. And so, um, I, you know, I think particularly it's these these skill sets, these sociological, anthropological skill sets actually happen amongst minorities um, and also women to some level, like women also get a chance to have to learn how to engage with, um, to be bilingual culturally with men. Um, but then also people of color also have to do that. When you when you aren't a part of like majority culture, then you have to learn how to be bilingual in order to move around in society. But oftentimes people aren't conscious of that. They intuitively know how to do that. And I think um, when you can consciously understand how you're navigating the world and not just only intuitively doing it, it actually it gives you more uh, resources and powers to navigate the world uh, much better. Um, and then if you're a person part of majority culture, whether you are male or whether you are white or, or both, um, you know, it's, it's, it's good to kind of realize there are more than one way of doing things, you know, and, um, and it would actually help you to be a lot more effective in your work and the work that you're doing. Yeah. And I, I think to it kind of, if you look at a lot of, I need to do more research on this, but like a lot of statistics about like the future of the workplace and the future of American society, like we're only growing in diversity and cultural and ethnic diversity. And so it's almost like if you don't learn, if everyone doesn't learn these skills of being bilingual or multilingual, both literally and figuratively, then you're not prepared to lead. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the future is here, you know, and you got to learn now. If you don't, you'll get, you'll get swept up. No, 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 no doubt about it. And well, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about Arabon. So you're saying it was in 2008. Your wife was like, hey, you are doing all of these. People keep asking you about this. How about we streamline it? Can you tell us more about what Arabon is? Yeah. So, I mean, um, the word Arabon means a foretaste of things to come. And uh, it's a, it's a, Christian nonprofit that focuses on helping 
uh, Christian leaders in their communities to have the tools to effectively engage in the work of reconciliation. And um, I know there's a lot of problematic words with that word reconciliation. I'll unpack what, how do we define it? What does it mean? But, um, but you know, the issues of race is a, is a, a distinctly unique Christian problem. Um, all cultures have various prejudices. All cultures have various levels of oppression. Oppression is like a human problem. But how that looks is particularly unique to different societies. So oppression looks very different in India than it looks like in America. It looks different in um, in, in Africa than the way it does in America. It looks different in uh, England than it does in America or in South America. It looks different. Um, but in the United States, you know, we've basically created this this this, this system called race, and um, and 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 it's uniquely Christian because. You know, it was co-opted and a lot of like Christian theology was co-opted to justify um, a lot of slavery and race and, and Jim Crow and all of those type of things. And so um, some of the people who are very well-meaning in certain Christian spaces oftentimes don't realize um, then what the, the, the kind of racist or... Um, unjust ideologies that might have been inherited. And so um, we help people unpack and understand a little bit of that. But then even more so, uh, what we do is we try to help people know what to do with it. You know, like, how do we do something different than what's been done? And um, so what that looks like is, you know, we help um, Christian leaders uh, help their communities understand reconciliation as spiritual formation. And then when I use the word reconciliation, um, I, I... I um, I agree with some of the critiques of that word where it's, you know, people say like, hey, in most cases with a reconciliation, you got to have two people who are, are equal, you know, and um, and then something's broken and that relationship is broken. So you're trying to reconcile that relationship back to what it once was. And, um, you know, if you're talking about the relationship between Europeans, you know, um, and Africans and First Nations people, those relationships were never equal. And so we're not trying to reconcile, you know, uh, what happened at 1492 or whatever. Uh, what we're trying to do is it's a theological term and kind of in, in the Christian understanding of, of the world is that the world was whole. It was good. It was beautiful. It was diverse. And then it was broken. And, um, and, and so it's a matter of trying to bring more wholeness, goodness, and beauty. And eventually, you know, the world will, will come together and be whole, good, and beautiful again, you know. Um, and and we're trying to be a foretaste of what that looks like. So that's that's what we try to help Christian leaders think through. So when we, when we have conflict, it's an opportunity to bring goodness, beauty, and grace. And so, so, um, so we see that as a basic human need. We see that as, as um, how we could be formed to be more Christ-like. And so um, so that's the foundation that we lay. The second piece that we do is try to increase the cultural intelligence of the community um, to realize that we come from different spaces and sometimes we could talk past each other or misinterpret information because of a lack of cultural intelligence. Um, and so we try to increase the cultural intelligence. The third thing we do is try to help the community understand a diverse shared narrative that we can all have uh, a different, the same uh, facts that could happen, but same set of events that could happen, but different experiences based off of that. And so, um, 
we um, do the work to in, uh, increase the share. People understand it, uh, learn a different share narrative. The fourth thing we do is help folks um, engage in, in healthy cross-cultural collaborations. And then the fifth piece is that we um, helping people engage in reconciling culture making. We are here today because of what happened yesterday. And so uh, if we want to see something different, then we need to uh, increase new culture uh, today for what we want to see tomorrow. So, so that's what we help institutions um, do and how to engage in that. And we have kind of three programs that we kind of express that in. One is through trainings and consulting. The second one is through an urban doxology songwriting internship, where we get young people between ages 18 to 25. They study the things that we teach, study justice, theology, reconciliation, urban context. And instead of writing papers, what they do is they write worship songs. And these worship songs become what's in our what we sing in our congregation and what um, we distribute out around the country. And then the third piece is there's a band called Urban Doxology who sings these songs, but they've embodied this in the worship practices. And so they travel around the country and lead worship and, and do workshops and teach people how to do this in their own communities. So so that's kind of how we, you know, we, we focus particularly on, um, on faith communities because, you know, there's a lot of challenges in faith communities. And um, a lot of times people in a racial equity uh, profession don't have patience for uh, Christians who who might be a little ignorant about what's going on. So um, that's the work that we do. And sometimes people in secular spaces might hire me out to um, come talk to their business or whatever. But as as a ministry, we stick within kind of the Christian context. Okay, so a big question, and I only have a couple more questions for you, but a big question that I'm always asking, especially doing this work that has a lot to do with race and systems and history and all these things, how do you know that you're having a good impact when the problem of racism is so large and so deeply entrenched? And so part of me is thinking, like, how do you measure progress? But then also just generally, um, yeah, how do you feel? What helps you know that you're making things better when the problem is so big? I mean, the way that I answered this is that, like, I'm a big local community guy. Like, I always want to see, um, I'll get knowledge from anybody, you know, whether I agree with you or disagree with you. I'm open for truth no matter where it comes from, who it comes from. Um but I only get wisdom from people who are rooted in, into something, some people that are part of a thing, you know. Um, in the conference world, there's so many people who have these concepts and ideas and aren't a part of any kind of community. They just go around and talk about stuff all the time. But they haven't actually been doing the stuff and put in practice. And I'll get knowledge from them. But the people that I really admire and respect are the ones who are known by a community that's rooted in the community that's trying to make stuff work out in the community. And, um, and, and that's, that's where I think true wisdom comes from. And so oftentimes, like we look at like Dr. King or Gandhi or Mother Teresa or who, you know, these, or even Nelson Mandela. And we're like, oh man, I'm trying to start a movement. I'm trying to do something great, you know? And I'm like, Dr. King was just a, a, a kid. Like, I mean, I mean, he was like a, a young man that just finished his PhD and, had his first church. He got tired of 
being under his dad. He was in Montgomery. And there was this thing called Jim Crow that was a significant pastoral concern to his congregation. And some of the other pastors that were around the table, um, he was a group of pastors in Montgomery that were like, man, we got to do something. And they came with this boy bus boycott. He just got pushed out because he was the youngest one that had the least amount to lose. I mean, he did not come out to be like, I want to start this movement called the Civil Rights Movement. He was just serving his local context. And he just so happened to be nice looking. He just so happened to be born during a time with technology, this big piece of technology called Color TV and TV. Uh, Color TV came out and um, and he he spent a good amount of time studying and um, and just had the right gifts for the right time to help spark something nationally. And, um, but it started out in a local community. So I do think if you think about the issues of race um, in the global space um, and just, I mean, not global, but just kind of national space and just all of how things are challenging. I mean, it's, it's an impossible task, but I think that reconciliation, I think everybody has a piece in the reconciliation puzzle to play. And I think that's going to be in your company. I think it's going to be in your family. I think it's going to be in your like local community. Um, look at the kind of stuff that you have in your hands. And so, I mean, I guess to close that thought out is, you know, um, there was a guy named Moses. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, uh, you might be familiar with Moses. And he was... Um, he, there was an oppressed people group he was trying to let let go uh, um, to be free. And he had friends, his, his old friend he grew up with named Pharaoh. Um, they had a showdown. He said, like, hey, let my people go. And eventually Pharaoh let him go. But then, you know, um, Pharaoh had buyer's remorse. And he was like, oh, man, maybe I, I, should, um, I shouldn't have let them go. And so um, Pharaoh started to chase after the Israelites when um, they, they were up a, a few miles ahead and Moses realized Pharaoh was behind them, but then the Red Sea was in front of them. And Pharaoh was like, oh God, what do we do? When you got the thing that you're trying not to be behind you that has caused you so much trouble and oppression, but then there's this insurmountable thing in front of you this big body of water and like what like like what's what do you do? And Moses looks up to God and says, God, what do you do? And God's like, yo, I gave you everything that you need. What are you looking for me for? Look at what's in your hand. And Moses had a a um a, a, um, a staff in his hand. And that was the thing that God used to help him to part the Red Sea. And you know, whether you're a religious person or not, um, I think when we deal with issues of race, we're in a, a Red Sea moment where there's some things that are behind us that we don't want to go back to. And the future is looking pretty uh, challenging also. And this very moment sounds very challenging. But I think that we're in a Red Sea moment. And when you're in a Red Sea moment, look at the thing that's in your hand. Because I think that's the thing that's going to help you to get through the challenge that you have. Wow. Oh, that is so good. Oh, man, that is so encouraging. Um, I have never thought of it that way. Um, wow. Okay. So my last question for you, this is the last question I ask everyone that I talk to. Um, the goal of the, this project, the diversity gap, is to explore the gap between 
what we intend and then what actually happens in real life as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion work in our organizations and in our communities. And so in your own words, um, as you look at the landscape of the work that you do and the teams that you support, what is the diversity gap and how do we close it? I think when you understand what the nature of race is, like race was created um, to allow one people a group to maintain and cultivate wealth. So whiteness and blackness was created because um, when Europeans and Africans um, were Europeans were indigenous servants, Africans were enslaved folks. They would team. They teamed up together to fight against the the minority group of landowning rich men, and so those rich men who own land said, hey, we don't want this to happen again. So either they were um, people who made law lawmakers or they were friends of folks who made laws. And they said, like, we can't do this anymore. Uh, we, we, we don't want these poor people to band together to uh, overtake us. And so let's do this. Let's divide these poor people by, we'll call, if you're black, we'll assume that you're a, a slave. And if you're white, we will make it illegal for you to be a slave. You'll at least be what they call a Christian servant. And we know that you can have opportunity to, to um, change your, your freedom and to get to the opportunity to um, advance economically. And so what this did was it created a situation where you had poor people who just so happened to be white supervise the poor black folks and and have somebody underneath them that they can look down on and have somebody above them that they can look up to or aspire to be. But it actually didn't change their actual economic status. And so it's important to realize that that's what race is about. Race is about, it was created for economic oppression and uh, to create uh, economic instability for one group of people and economic aspirations for another group of people. And so, um, and also to maintain and cultivate um, economic power for another group of people. And so when you just understand that that's what races have been about, and it was about slavery, then it being about Jim Crow, you just understand race economically, then you realize the way to um, what the problem is really is about economics and economic opportunities. And and so here's the thing, like I think the diversity gap is, is really, um, my, my friend Rudy Rasmus said it this way, if you wanna know what's going on, listen to what people say, but follow the money trail. And the more that we can create economic opportunities for men and people, of, I'm sorry, for women and people of color, uh, the more that we can create economic opportunities for women and people of color. Um, and I'm not talking about just so they can get paid more. I'm talking about so that they can be entrepreneurs, so that they can be employers, not just employees. Um, there's such a, there's more in white communities at certain spaces and levels, there's just more opportunity to get capital. And there is not that same opportunity to get capital amongst people of color, even folks like you and myself, Bethany, who are in white spaces, um, there aren't that many um, ones of us who are running 
well-capitalized businesses and nonprofits, you know, and, um, and I'm one of the few in my space. Like I'm like, by the grace of God, Airbon did not come up with connected to any kind of like white institutions. Like it was just, it was literally, you know, just kind of God's grace and sovereign hands kind of helping to navigate through certain spaces. But uh, we're not super well capitalized, but we're in, like, I know how the money trail goes in, in these spaces, you know, and that, that circle is very small and they trade money back and forth to each other and they grants and all those kind of things. Um, that's the way I see it. Like, I'm not telling you something I heard. I, I see it. I'm on boards. Um, I'm on all these different things. And I think when people realize it's not like that because people are personally racist, it's like that because the system was designed to be that way, and you don't have to you don't have to be personally racist in order to to, to participate in that system. The system was designed; it's getting the results that the system was designed for. And so, I think when when you understand that, then um, that 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 creates opportunity to fill that to fill that gap, you know. And I think I think any conversation about that is. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not a substantive conversation. You know, um, I mean, I, actually, that might be too harsh harsh of a phrase, but it's just not getting to the root cause. It's probably a better way of saying that. I mean, I, I you know, you know, I think, and I do think we have to get to that place where we're dealing with things at that level. Well, that's yeah, that's really good. I think that'll be really um, eye opening, and I think it'll give a lot of clarity to people about who, especially those who are asking like, okay, what do I need to do differently um, as their understanding of race as an economic um, system, how those two things are tied together as they're growing in that understanding, being able to see like, Oh, actually creating these opportunities for ownership and, um, and to be able to create that, not necessarily to create wealth, but to at least sustain and grow something um, for women and people of color, I think that's just going to be really helpful to people. So, yeah, and even just to unpack that, because so imagine you have a bullseye, and economic capital is the thing that's in the red that you're trying to get to. Outside of that, in order to get that, is a, is another ring, and that's the intellectual capital of how to get access to that actual financial capital. And the way that you get a chance to understand the intellectual capital is that third ring, and that's that social capital. Um, and so people do business and they give philanthropy philanthropy to the people that they know and they like. And so because of the way our cities have been designed, because of the way the race has worked in America, there oftentimes just aren't even people of color or women that are in these spaces, in these, the social circle, to even know who they are, let alone like them, you know? And so... So that is one space that is really important to understand. And we kind of know that in a diversity gap conversation tends to know about how do we engage in our social spaces uh, to make our social spaces a little bit more diverse. But whatever that social space is going on, there's an economic um, core that's at the inside of that. And what happens is, is that a lot of times people of color and women aren't invited to that next level and that's the intellectual capital aspect of it. How do you access the money? So, for example, you know, if you went to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School, there's some social capital that people know. 
you know, and you can be like, oh man, they, they went to Harvard, they went to Stanford. But then what's in that is that you've learned how to get money for startup money. Like you know how to give a presentation, you know how to do certain kind of things. And so um, you get that from that social circle. But the thing about that is it's really, really important to understand is that there's certain conversations that that oftentimes doesn't have a mixed company. There's certain conversations that don't happen when women are in the room. There's certain kind of conversations that don't happen when, when, when people of color are in the room. Or there's an assumption that folks know and they're being judged off of that intellectual capital when they're in that social space, that social capital space. They're being judged about like, oh, everybody knows this is how you put a proposal together. Well, if you didn't come from a community that put proposals together for um, multi-million dollar um, companies or know how to do pitches, then you didn't even, I didn't even know I was supposed to do a pitch. I thought I had to do a business plan. People were like, oh man, people stopped doing business plans like 30 years ago. You know, they do, they do pitches, you know. Um, you know, nobody prints off a piece of paper and says like, hey, here's my business plan. Can you take a week and read this? You know, and so, so that's how to do stuff. It's the intellectual capital aspect of it. And I think when you, um, when you understand the gap and women and people of color, um, what you want to do is maybe just try to ask. And, and there's some people in my life who have been helpful to kind of help me to ask quote, quote, dumb and ignorant questions, you know? Um, and when you're a woman, when you're the only person, you're the only woman in this space and you're the only person of color, most of the time it's not a safe enough space to be like, hey, I don't know this. Can you can you can you tell me because if you don't know it, then it's oftentimes a judgment on your character, and so uh, just understanding that would help out a ton. And then the third piece would be getting um, in on that bullseye. Um, that I found that the most of, whenever I've been able to raise a lot of capital, it's really been tied to having, generally speaking, a white female advocate, or or um, a white, some kind of white advocate, like, and I don't have any ego on this kind of stuff. Um, I just recently, let me think about this. Yeah, I think I might have one, maybe two people who have actually given money to me directly. Like I'm talking about 25,000, like that kind of level of 20, $25,000 um, of like one-time gifts, like, um, to me directly. Most of that has come through um, a relationship with some white person. And, and and I just think, you know, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not angry about it. I mean, let me see. Sometimes I might be angry about it. And I don't think it should be that way. But I mean, I'm just like, it just is what it is. So I just know that's how it has to work. So, you know, when I'm talking with white people who are tight with me that wants to do something, I'm like, hey, um, can you can you go to bat with me in the community? Because like people who can give checks for twenty five thousand dollars oftentimes give twenty five hundred dollars to minorities. One because basically oftentimes because they don't know and trust them in the same way that they would no one trust somebody who's white. And I'm not saying because they're racist. I'm saying it's because culturally that's what they're familiar with, and this is an outsider coming in. So I don't know if they can handle these resources in this way. And, and there's a lot of times these like cultural biases that are have been a part of this conversation. So, I mean, these are things that I've learned over the last 11 years of doing this, this organization. And, um, um, 
and I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to um, navigate around around these things and, and navigate through these things. And and I just want to encourage people to to realize this is a thing, um, um, and and you can do something about it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good. Thanks for breaking that down and and illuminating it with some of your own stories too. I think that'll be super helpful for everybody. So, gosh. Thank you. Thank you for your time and your wisdom and um, your metaphors. You're really great at just like you kind of said earlier, taking what's complicated and making it simple. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, David. How can people follow you in your work? Yeah, so I would say um, go on Arabon.com. Um, definitely sign up for the newsletter. Um, we we um, The fourth quarter going into 2020, we're actually going to have um, – um, some really good resources. I knew that I was going to provide some great resources. Um, I am not super great at social media, but you still can follow me. Like whenever I do send something, at least you can find it, find it out. Uh, it's David Airbond. I'm sorry. It's David, um, David M. Bailey. That's my um, social media handle, David M. Bailey. And um, yeah, and you can check out Urban Oxology. Um, check out on Spotify, Apple Music, all that kind of stuff. Cool, cool. I'll make sure to link to all of those things in the show notes. gosh, so rich, right? I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation between me and David. And I want to encourage you to grab a moment after this podcast episode is over to jot down on a piece of paper or in the notes app on your phone. Just take a moment to capture what's resonating or what's created dissonance for you. Resonance and dissonance. I find that listening for these two things in our hearts, minds, stories, bodies gives us such good data in our leadership lives. And so when I say listen for what's resonating, listen for the thing that sticks out to you, that feels good to you, that sounds true, that brings energy to your organizational life, to your leadership, to your thinking on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then in terms of dissonance, that's where we pay attention to discomfort, things we didn't like, things we didn't agree with. And when we create space for both the parts that resonate and the parts where there's dissonance, we really get into the magical dance of becoming race-conscious leaders, of practicing mindfulness. It's just a really simple way to dial way into what's happening for you and what the unique invitations are for you to expand as a DEI leader, practitioner, champion, advocate, whatever title you would use for yourself. And so again, take a moment after this episode's over to just jot down the resonance, jot down the dissonance, either or. It can just be one thing or it can be 10 things, whatever you have time for. But that's one way to make sure that you're able to carry these lessons into your future. And lastly, as we land the plane here, I want to extend an invitation to you to submit a listener question. If you have questions about this episode, if you have questions about any part of your organization's diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I would love to tango with you around those things. And so um, if you check out the link in our show notes, again, there's lots of links in the show notes today. Um, There's a link for you to submit a listener question. And once you submit it, I will review it and hopefully in a future episode, I'll be able to respond to that question. So check out that link and I look forward to catching you here next week. Thank you 
so much for listening to this episode of the Diversity Gap Podcast. I'm really glad you're here. If this episode has been helpful to you in a big way and a small way, please take a few minutes to rate and review the show. This is how other people find the Diversity Gap and are able to get involved in our work. You can also learn more about the Diversity Gap and all of our offerings over at www.thediversitygap.com. Thanks for being here.